From KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, I have a conversation with playwright Bofield Berry, whose play Red Summer, dramatizing the life of William Brown, sold out its entire run at the Blue Barn Theater last fall. When I look at Red Summer, I don't even see the show that I wrote. I see the show that was created by this village of creatives that we brought together. Mm-hmm. And that that is what gives me joy in it. You know, like I can may not ever be fully happy with a script that I've written, but I'm fully happy with the production. Barry discusses her evolution as a writer and how she tackled a project that reached back into Omaha's uncomfortable past while creating something that resonated with audiences for its relevance to today's world. Stick around for my conversation with Bofield Barry right here on Riverside Chats. local restaurant let's go we munch yes there is munch and talk about the experience what we got where did we go we're still there two boxes of food in lighthearted banter i just jammed the rest of the mediterranean in my mouth meatball based items in a way that is both zany this is gonna be crazy we might end up throwing up and fun my hands are burning hell yeah every episode features an exclusive song where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, yeah. It sounds like haha. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. That's what happens. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we're playing a conversation I had in 2019 with playwright Bofield Berry, whose play Red Summer dramatized the life of William Brown in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots of 1919. Red Summer sold out its entire run at the Blue Barn Theater, and Berry is currently working on bringing the play to more audiences in new forms, as well as a new outdoor experience that she hopes to premiere in September. As a general content warning, this discussion, since it is related to the historical lynching in Omaha, uh, just be aware that there is discussion of some violence. The discussion itself is not graphic, but if that's something that you don't want to listen to, just be aware that that is part of the content of the play, the history, and the overall conversation that happens here. So here's my conversation with Bofield Berry powerful before the ending. The yes. ending didn't do anything for me. Right. Well, it's almost like it trying to be so ambiguous with the ending kind of took away from the power of how simple it was up to that point. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd say first reformed, actually, there's maybe some similarity because that's a movie that you just, it's hard to get it out of your head after you watch it in some ways where it's like you're just looking into that abyss of like hopelessness and powerlessness. Yeah. And I'd say your play has some degree of that too. Oh, we're on air. We're doing this. We are on air now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're doing this. Okay. Um, you think so? I mean, you. I don't know that you were emphasizing it, but it's hard not to confront the history mm-hmm. and what actually happened and not be overwhelmed with that. Right, right, right. Well, I think it's... I think something that I found was really true in that Thursday audience that you were in and versus we had a um, preview night audience for black leaders in Omaha, that the audience reaction when it's a mostly black audience versus when it's a mostly white audience was very different. And it was palpable. Even the actors had mentioned it. Um, The black audience was very reactive and vocal to it. And the white audience seemed to be a little bit more of an internal Mm -hmm. reaction. You know, I think that, it, it is true, and I did write it in this way because I knew very well that it would affect different audiences differently, but I didn't expect that to be something that everyone felt. I had said, I even said in one of our talkbacks, I was like, like, I wrote this show for the Omaha community at large, mm-hmm. and um, the black audience will take it differently from a white audience. Where those variables le- land... I can't say, True. but I could just, I just know like seeing something like people in, in your audience weren't as surprised about Virginia's reactions. 
you know, in the way that she was in the world. And I just found that really interesting. Do you think that's a cynicism or what do you attribute that to? Um, no, I don't think it's a cynicism. I think it's like, for me, I think it's a reflection of just our truths. Like, I don't feel like I really held a lot back in writing the show. You know, I want to confront things head on. And I took it from the black migrant perspective for a reason, because we're so used to hearing about these stories from the top down. Right. Right. So we know about, well, there was the the guys who, who run the town and run the newspaper and all the politics of it. And then this guy that gets lynched is just a part of their story. Right. He's just um, a, a fodder in this big machine. And so when you start at the very bottom, you have to confront the truce. Because it doesn't really, for these people in this world, all of those big machine things don't really matter mm-hmm. until it affects them directly. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, you were playing with the politics of that in a lot of ways too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because they talk about, you know, I can only do what I can do. And there's sort of that element of what power do you actually have? What power don't you have? And even just the, even within the relationships. I mean, it seems like that's all over this play. Yes. But from a bottom up perspective, right? right? So like from the people who really have no power, right? how all of these powerful decisions and powerful men um, really have control of their fate. Right. And then, I mean, that compiled with the power of just irrational hate I think is part of that abyss where it's just like, I mean, even though it's not the yeah. emphasis, it's hard not to just let that soak into you and just like I, after the play at first I wanted to go, you know, talk to you after it, but I just needed to sort of like regain my composure and let it all soak in before I even could do anything. <laughs> my husband said the same thing. He said after the show, he came to one of the preview nights and someone came up to him and said, so what did you think about the show? And he was like, it doesn't f- matter what I think about the show. Everybody needs to go home and just, think that's exactly yeah <laughs> well then i so to drive home i had to drive through downtown omaha and it's just like mm-hmm. it's everywhere and mm-hmm. i just you know i mean not that i was trying to get it out of my head necessarily but it's like that almost was its own reflective experience and journey that i went through just you know thinking about it all and i don't know i mean i don't know that like i said i don't know that you were trying to make me fall into this abyss or anything but <laughs> i feel like to some extent it's just it's hard to ignore it no okay so absolutely not as a matter of fact, part of that whole process was creating these lives on stage that are very full. Like mm-hmm. we see people laughing and, and being in love and partying and having a good time. And it is to, it's really to show that um, this tragedy, that we don't live in this tragedy. We visited this tragedy. They're just trying to live their whole full lives. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what I was getting at about how different audiences react differently because um, for many of the black audiences, that joy of that, they're grateful that thank you for just showing more of his life than just, you know, that horrible picture that we know. Right. And for white audiences, of course, this comes with a side of the ever present white guilt. I'm trying not to layer that onto you. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know how much of that played into my reaction or not, but I think to some extent just humanizing people mm-hmm. realistically or in a way that, you know, you emotionally connect with them makes the tragedy a lot more palpable. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think about it in terms of, like, when we're thinking in modern terms. So, Will Brown, we've known that story. Or a lot of people don't know that story, but a lot of us do. We've known that name for a long time. We know this horrific thing happened to him but we don't know much else about his life or I don't know how much people have cared to dig into what more is behind his life. And I think about that in terms of in 2019, who is that for us? You know, um, is Will Brown, would Will Brown be a hashtag? You know, people that are just kind of um, thrown into the spotlight because of the horrific ways that they've met their fate. And it's, and usually in these cases, racially based in the media, um, how much more, and then, you know, people form their narratives about those people based on their own bias. Mm-hmm. It's automatic, you know? Um, well, if they had complied, if they had done this, if they had done that, things could be different. 
And so I want to remove that barrier that this is tragic because it happened 100 years ago and it shouldn't have happened when there are cases that are happening like that right now that shouldn't happen and they do. And we kind of remove ourselves from those people. Um, But they have just as full lives as any of us. What's it called? It's called Sonder. You know, when Sonder is the recognition that the person, the stranger sitting across from you has just... as full of a life as you do yourself well i think that's partially what makes it so scary in the play to some extent because like the basic element of empathy is i assume there's some degree of like you know rational thought or reason among people in general that humans have that but to do what they did to him i don't know how you find rational elements to that i don't know how you find reason in that and just that that's coming from the position of power, which has the least amount of you know significant thought to it or logic you can follow, mm-hmm. is terrifying. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, surely you're trying to push that in there as well, right? I mean, that that drives some of what's going on. Well, the scariest thing is that I don't feel like I had to push anything. You that's know, true. just I mean, going from the narratives of the research that I did was horrific enough, and I researched for this play for. I mean, months and I was, I found myself in really dark places when I did it because I was asking myself those exact questions. I was wondering like, okay, well this, these horrific things, because when people think about lynching, you kind of probably just think about like a hanging of some sort. But something I really learned was that there is a major difference between hanging as a form of punishment for a crime committed versus the pure spectacle and torture of a lynching. When I went back and read accounts of what mobs of people did to other people in lynchings, it was it was absolutely, I mean, I don't have words for it. It was inhumane. Right. And it really sat with me that they didn't see Will or these other victims as people you you I, I don't understand how you can see someone as a human person and then commit these atrocities to their body in front of you in front of children right. while people gather around so when I go back to that narrative and I try to just stay as true to that because it really was terrorism for a lot of people. And in the beginning of the show, we discussed how people were leaving the South in droves to come up North. And so much of it was based on lynchings that they saw or family members lost or fighting for their own lives. So it's not hard to dig into the horror of that. Jordan Peele is doing a new series. that's going to be a Jim Crow horror series. I've heard of this. Yeah. Lovecraft country. I'm like, so about this (laughs) because that's, I was explaining to my director and my, um, dramaturg. I was like, this is a horror tale. Like that is what this is, you know? And we pulled out of that a little bit through the crafting of the show, but it absolutely started out as a horror play. And I mean, I assume it was a conscious decision not to have the people doing the lynching as characters or not to include a lot of the people in power, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you think that to some extent that's because it's difficult to humanize those people? I mean, would they just be sort of like almost cartoonishly evil villains if they were a part of it? No, I feel like um, it's been their narrative for long enough. Okay, so it's just that. Okay, so shifting the focus was the whole idea there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, like, as... The playwright, though, to some extent, are you thinking about them as characters? Is that something that comes into it? Uh, like what their motivations are trying to think of them as humans? Even? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, I find that really hard to humanize people in the mob in the context of this story. You know, y- they are humans and they're really flawed humans and it's just not their story. If you're just joining us. Today we're playing a 2019 conversation with Bofield Berry, writer behind the play Red Summer, which dramatized the life of William Brown in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots of 1919. Are you from Omaha originally? I am. Okay. So do you have family history throughout Omaha? Yes. I've got a really deep family history in North Omaha specifically, and um, I come from a long line of people who have been very civically engaged in their communities. And yeah. And now I'm one of them. So 
Was that something like as you're a kid, as a kid, were you politically aware and active? And I mean, was that something that was on your radar then from a young age? I was raised with my mother and my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was from the South, um, Gwinnett County, Georgia, born in 1922. So he had a very different life experience than we do now. And I grew up with all of his stories and all of those tales. And it was nothing for us to be driving up 24th Street and my grandfather to say, well, this is where the riots were. This is where Vivian Strong was killed. They set this whole area over here on on fire, talking about the riots from the 1960s which my family had been involved in. My grandmother was a leader in in North Omaha, um, specifically with children, and then she was also a panther for a while. So, yeah, I grew up with this this sense of living in many different Omahas. Okay. Um, So what were the different Omahas to you? Well, the different Omahas being the people who, like kids like me, who grew up knowing all of these horrific stories, Mm -hmm. and then kids who grew up, west of downtown or north omaha who did not grow up with those stories and didn't have to hear about that side of things in omaha right people surprised to know wow something like this really happened here right there's that sense of surprise mayor stothert said it on the courthouse stairs at the memorial this past weekend she said it's hard to believe that this happened in omaha and i was like "Mm, no (laughs) that that's maybe your opinion that it's hard to believe but that's your omaha was it overwhelming for you as a kid or were you able to have sort of this idea like maybe there's something that can be done? Maybe there's some focus through political action that can change things? Not as a kid. As a kid, it, you know, it was just normal mm-hmm. because it wasn't like we weren't always we weren't mired in dark Omaha history. <laughs> you know, like we also lived down there and played down there and and that was just part of everything. Um, but as I grew up, you know, as any kid, but especially a biracial kid. Maybe um, you grow up and you have identity crises and you try to fit in with the the people that you're around. And and then I didn't really get like politically vocal about things again until my late 20s when I really started noticing. What was that? What happened then? Um, I had my first baby and it was within that pregnancy. My father is a white Trump supporter. Interesting. Has he seen the play? I don't know. I don't. We don't speak. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> we don't speak. We didn't grow. I didn't grow up with him, so it wasn't. You know, okay. it's not a major loss. But um, but um, when as I was having my first baby, I just really something inside me shifted, and I had to have a, a sense of grounding and a sense of knowing who I am, mm-hmm. and um, that was also around. Michael Brown and Ferguson. Okay. And so as I start seeing what's happening and I just open my eyes and I'm just not playing cute little girl anymore and I just kind of grew up and that was that informed me of how I want to work in the world and and how I want my work to inform the world. Was that part of just the sort of fear of the world that your child was coming into? Hmm. My I knew my child would be white passing and my husband is white. So it wasn't so much about fear for his life, but my entire family is black and it's hard for me, even in the research of this play and watching those narratives play out on TV. And then really incenses me is like comment sections on the, on news channels. Right. Um, Just seeing how far we haven't come. And I had to pick a side. I I don't I don't allow racism in my spaces. Right. So that's what I chose. And so it needed to be an active choice. That- it needed to be an active choice. Yeah, because because I've always been like a people person. I've always been very like accommodating. My father would say things that upset me or insulted me, but I would just be like, "Well, that's your opinion." And now that is just no longer good enough. <laughs> I mean, comment sections are always horrible. Like, they're always the worst things in the whole world. I mean, mm-hmm. so do you find that that, I don't know, some people would say that that's not the thing to judge the rest of society on, but it is a part of it still, and it is more prevalent as the internet grows. Yeah, I mean, yes. That is where you judge society now. And I've been saying this through all of my press for the show. It's like, no, we don't have lynch mobs in the street anymore, but that mentality goes somewhere. 
you can go to any comment section underneath something about a black person or an immigrant person and you can see who would be in their lynch mob because just because we've passed laws and we've passed legislation doesn't mean mob mentality racist mob mentality is gone anywhere my dad for some reason has dedicated all of his free time right now to fighting unreasonable people on facebook comment sections and i keep trying to tell him like this is i don't know what you think you're gonna accomplish here and he's like i think they're no. listening i think they're gonna get it like, why? I, I have been there. I have done that so many times. And I have said, like, if you see me in the comment section fighting hard, I'm probably a little depressed that day. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. So, I, I mean, so you are balancing this plus, I mean, obviously the impulse to make art. So mm-hmm. where did that start? Well, I've been doing theater since I was a teenager and I've been a writer since even before that as a kid. That's always what I wanted to do. Um so it was natural it's a way for me to be able to use my voice and make change in the world without fighting with people on Facebook right right that is like that is the thing it's like I I realized that having mm, lectures at people that does not work what I do think can get through to people to just create a foundation of empathy or like just a little crack in their wall is to create art that really just presents a truth and then have them figure it out for themselves. You know, everybody who left the theater that night and the night since, they take something of their own home with them. I can't dictate what that is. It's Mm -hmm. whatever they need from that show. And so for me, that's the way I can use my voice to to open us up to these deeper conversations. Was that, I mean, when did that manifest as the goal for telling stories though? I mean, cause that's a very nuanced way of looking at it. <laughs> so surely not when you're like 10, you know? No, 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 no. Um, my first play that was produced was called Psycho Ex-Girlfriend before Crazy Ex-Girlfriend yeah, came you out. Should, uh, should I have, know. should be getting some royalties for that. I was like, oh, this b- Um, and I think that was like, that was the first time that I used that play to really very cathartically to like unleash some, some dating demons that I had. (laughs) The tagline was psychos aren't dated, they're created. (laughs) And, um, so I used, so I think that's where kind of the reflection started. It's not just a reflection on the world around us. It's also a reflection of myself as a writer and then a reflection of the audience and what they take away from it. So it's been a growing process, too. When, I mean, why plays specifically is sort of, because you've also done a book, right? Mm-hmm. And then, did I see screenwriter on something? Yes. Okay, yeah. so you, you're yeah. kind of all over the place, but yeah. are you you're primarily doing plays right now anyway? Theater is my first and greatest love. Okay, did you I, do plays in high school? Um, I was homeschooled in high school, but oh, okay. I was part of a theater collective. So we did do a lot of plays in high school. We were the nerds. Um, I wrote, directed, acted, stage managed, all of that stuff. So you, you had the bug and you were passionate about it enough to do all that work. Yeah. Where does that yeah. come from? I don't know. And I'm so lazy now. <laughs> like my dramaturg is like, a, you know, your dramaturg helps you suss out the script and get it historically accurate. And she's like, you're being lazy here. Anytime I, I write a montage inside of a script, when I, it's like, I don't know what else they do. So make them do a montage to music. That'd be great. But the montages are great. I love so, a montage. I mean, yeah. yeah. You knew what it meant to be, like, you to have to direct it, to have to do those jobs. And so, like, mm-hmm. were, you, were you someone who was just obsessively reading about theater and trying to like, absorb all of that mm-hmm. in the process? So in high school and, like, high school age, um, we tried a little bit of everything, but I really saw... Like my, I just fell into the love of writing, of crafting the stories that everybody else could take to stage. I would act, I just acted recently in a show, but it's not my favorite thing. It gives me too much nervy nerves. Mm -hmm. Directing isn't, I don't feel like I have the eye for direction. I feel like there's so many amazing directors out there that I just want to work with them. I don't need to be them. So that you're not so power hungry then if you're able to (laughs) 
understand no. that. Because most people are like, yeah, I might not do as good of a job, but I want the job anyway. Yeah, no, no. You're so then Thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> I'm talking with Bowfield Barry, playwright behind Red Summer, which dramatized the life of William Brown in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots of 1919. We'll continue the conversation after the break, right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm talking today with Bowfield Barry, the playwright behind Red Summer, which dramatized the life of William Brown in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots of 1919. I mean, you figured out early on you wanted to do playwriting then, and mm-hmm. so did you want to study that, like, formally? Um, I did... A few playwriting classes. I've never been a great student. Okay. I just get, I'm like, I like it, and then I'm just over it. <laughs> I need to, like, move on. Like, you get the idea, and you're like, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I don't like to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like to be told it must happen this way or this way or this way or this way, and I can study kind of all of that on my own. I say that, however, my friend, one of my closest friends is a playwright at Yale right now, and I'm like, send me all of your lessons. <laughs> well, because you, you want to learn from it, just not in the structure yeah, of I want to learn from it. I don't want to pay for it. Well, yeah, fair, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, give me give me the lessons without, you know, that. Right. But so, I mean, like at some point, though, you're thinking, if this is going to be a job, I've got to figure out how to actually get plays put on in a way where it's sort of, there's the commercial element to it, right? I mean, it's like... Hopefully making some money, or at least there's some money going into the productions, not just all thrown together. I think that I am really excellent at that, because I cannot stand art. And it annoys me. This is just true. It is just, and it's always been true. I think about my audience as, who do I want to reach? I want to reach people who don't see theater all the time. I want to reach people who are like, why would I go to a play? I want to reach people who are like, um, I haven't been to the theater since high school productions. And then I want to get them a ticket. I want to get their butts in those seats. And then I want to pull them in and make them want to watch that play and the next one after it. People like my husband, who I have been very judicious with what I bring him to. I have to bring him to something good because if I bring him to something bad, I'll lose him forever. Like, you know, socially. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's not just going to walk out because I'm Leave me with the kids and the mortgage. Oh, my God. Um, So for me, I'm always thinking about that. I think about entertainment level, you know? Like, I don't want to write. I want to write for the audience at large, for the blue-collar audience who does not give a about Bertolt Brecht. And they just want to come and be entertained and get their money's worth. This is why you're not a good theater student in classes, I assume. Um, yep, yep, yeah. yep, 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 yep. Like, I don't want to talk about Tennessee Williams. Yeah, like, do we got to wait for Godot again? No. Okay. <laughs> no. So how do you set out to do that? Because that's a very ambitious goal. Surely you're aware that's especially ambitious. I like to do pop-up theater. So I do like, we just did this thing last summer called Mom's Night Out. And it was moms who can't do a full run of a show because that's like three months of your life anymore. Um, so they come in, we rehearsed for a few times, we just do funny skits and we sold out the house and then we were done with it. And then by the time everybody's talking about about it, we're, we're out of there, we're done. Um, I did a fundraiser show called The Flora and the Fauna and I pulled in, it was a play for two actors and I was producing that and I pulled in 
18 different actors to play all the different scenes. I'm like, okay, if we pull in 18 different actors, that's 18 different fan bases to bring people in from. You know, that's how you kind of like start to grow an audience. And then every time I do something, I make sure it's not boring and I make sure it's quality. And then I promote the out of it. But you, and you're good at that. You know how to do that. Right? Yeah. So. I was in PR and like, um, um, marketing and branding for years okay so so what i mean what i mean before you're always sort of talented at that at getting people to actually show up or is that something you had to figure out no no i've always been great at that (laughs) okay even my cast right now they like my cast showed up and they were like we were just told to be here bo told us to come we didn't even know we were auditioning for a thing (laughs) and now we're in this cast and i'm like yeah thanks i'm sorry i didn't tell you but Thanks for being here. What do you attribute that to? How do you know how to rally people like that? My charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Okay, yeah, you got it all <laughs> at the list. Charisma is interesting to me. How do, you, how do you get good at being charismatic? You don't. I think you got it or you don't. Okay. And I think people who don't got it, you don't have to have it. You just got to find a friend who does. And you, but you, I mean, it's much easier for you to have that. Like, because you, then you can do the plays and you can market them and you can convince people. It's more work for you, but you also don't have to rely on people. I hate relying on people so much. Have you had problems re- relying on people? For yes. I have art? found people are never, not never, and sorry, nobody be offended. But I have found like people not willing to work as hard as I am to get the result that I want to get to. Right. A few years ago, my friends told me that I wasn't laid back and I was like completely shocked. They were like, Bo, you're not like laid back at all. And I was like, <laughs> excuse me like I go with the flow they're like no you make the game plan and then you force us to do what you want right. and then you think you're going with the flow and I'm like oh my god that is a reckoning a reckoning that I didn't expect um so I think it's charisma with uh, like a mix of just being a type a psycho but you can focus too yeah. Enough. I mean, they get things done. Most, Enough. So, I mean, surely you know so many people who are like, I want to write a play, and they never really finish it, or even if they do, they never really do anything with it. It right? drives me crazy. Yeah. Like, why would you put so much of what you really want to do on the back burner? So that That's something else that happened to me, too, really, as I became a parent. People think that, you know, once you have kids, like, that's when your your life is over, and, like, you give your life to your kids. It was a complete opposite for me. My 20s were, like insane I was traveling drinking like what do you like I was a crazy girl and I was awesome and then we accidentally got pregnant and then something clicked inside me it was like this immediate drive all these little things I'd been doing along the way bobbing along I had like a thirst and a hunger and it and it really spurred on with having my first baby I think it was just because it's like if I don't hold on to this for dear life, I could lose it. Right. I think that's always the case to some extent. I mean, no matter what you're doing. But it seems like it's worked for you. You figured it out. I think it's determination and I think it's having a good marriage for me. Okay. Because my husband's my biggest supporter and he's got a great job. And so it has allowed me because I'm definitely privileged in that way that I get to stay home with my kids and work from home with my kids and I don't have to worry about working for somebody else for eight hour, eight precious hours a day. Right. You know, so I don't take that for granted, but I think, um, like having a good, something I really realized was that if there's a part of your life that isn't working, none of it's going to work. So you can have all this awesome stuff going for you, but if you come home to a bad marriage, it's not going to work. If you hate the going to the job that you hate going to every single day, It's not working. Mm -hmm. And I think people just, after a while, and I've seen this in so many friends that I've grown up with, you just accept this. You've lost your dreams. You've, You've thrown away all the things that you were passionate about as a kid. And you're just fine with being mediocre. And I cannot die like that. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly you value time more than anything else, right? It's like, I want to be doing what I want to do. I want to be present in the moment <laughs> if and, you, well, this and not is hate how, it. That is how I ended up on exhaustion yeah. watch <laughs> yesterday <laughs> because I'm doing way too much. But yes, yeah, um, because I just, I don't know. I feel, I feel like I just don't want to have any of those 
regrets of, oh, I always wanted to write a play and I never did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay because, you know, I'm making it about me, 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 because I'm the one on the podcast. But like that show, when I look at Red Summer, I don't even see it, the show that I wrote. I see the show that was created by this village of creatives that we brought together. Mm-hmm. And that that is what gives me joy in it. You know, like I could may not ever be fully happy with a script that I've written, but I'm fully happy with the production because the director, the dramaturg, the actors, the crew have all poured their themselves into it. Yeah. And so, okay, so you, you found sort of a rhythm with it, right? Because you've done several plays in the last few years, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what were some of the other big ones, the big recent ones? So In the Upper Room was a big one. That's having a production at a Lort Theater, which is one of the major theaters in America, but I can't say which one yet. Um in 2021 yes so that's a really big deal and that started out here at the great plains theater conference and then it went to the denver center for performing arts and then we're gonna do a big one night production of it here again and uh i actually finished that play three years ago today wow okay thank you that's very exciting yes it was and i said i think i just wrote my best play ever you knew I, I knew. I knew. It was magic. When I wrote it, this is going to sound, I'm going to sound crazy, but when I wrote it, um, I banged it out. It's a hundred page play. I banged it out in three days time. That's, did, did you have uh, dehydration problems then too? <laughs> it's like it's dry as hell. Like just get, get this done. And I felt like my ancestors converged on that dark office that I was in and they spoke through me. And that is the way that play came out so fast and so automatically ready to go up. And it's the one that has gone the farthest. That's crazy. Does that scare you to some extent? You're like, am I going to have a three-day like, fit of inspiration again? <laughs> Haunt me. <laughs> um, no, I welcome it. I welcome it. There were times I was scared, but... What was really freaky to me was that in that process, I didn't tell my husband what was going on. And he came down and he was like, something's off in the house. He's like, something's here. What's going on? And he's like an Iowa born Hawkeye fan. So he's like, he's not really one for, you know, the kooky stuff. And he was like, something's off here. And I was like, um, I'm being haunted right now. And he's like, oh, all right, cool. Just keep it cool. Just keep it cool. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. But the fact that he felt that energy um, without being, without me telling him about it, like, let me know, like, it was, this is really palpable. Are you a spiritual person? I'm, I'm dabbling. I don't know. It's been, it's been a rough road. My mom was raised in, my family was raised in the church. My mom is very spiritual. People have called my mother a prophet. Her prayers make me feel safe. They make me feel really good. But I couldn't be, when I was a teenager, I I couldn't be part of churches anymore because I, I realized how anti-LGBTQ they were. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, that, well, this isn't me. I mean, my life is in the theater. Like, you know. So I've struggled back and forth with that. Um, so I'm still kind of looking. But, I mean, when you say, like, your ancestors converged, is that more metaphorical or is there some degree no, of like actually belief in right. that? No, it's an actual belief. Okay. It is an actual belief. I don't know like where it lands where I could, I don't know like where it lands spiritually. Mm-hmm. I believe in, I believe in that. I believe in the spirits being around us. I believe in the things that I felt, mm-hmm. but I don't know like, you know, how to, how to put that into words really yet. But you can put it into a play, I guess, right? I can, I can write the shit out of a play about it. <laughs> yes. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Bofield Berry, playwright behind Red Summer, which dramatized the life of William Brown in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots in 1919. The play sold out its entire run at the Blue Barn last fall, which is when I talked to Bofield Berry. Here's the rest of the conversation. Okay, so Red Summer was commissioned, right? Yes. Um, so I... A friend of mine, Kelsey Watson, who's an Omaha native, he's from, he's living in LA and he was like, hey, I want to do a show about Will Brown. I was like, that's weird. I've been thinking the same thing. And it was really this anniversary was looming in the air as we got into 2019 and lots of creatives were talking about it. Lots of people were talking about 
Will Brown. And it was just like all at the same time. So he came to town and he was like, so you can like start working on the script. I was like, great. And then he's like, I'm going to take it to the Blue Barn. I didn't have a relationship with the Blue Barn um, at the time, but he had had a longstanding one. So we take it to Susan uh, Tober, who was the artistic director. And she was surprised because I brought in a nine person cast. I was like, I'm just going to bring in. This is I guess this is the kind of stuff. So she's used to somebody pitching a script by bringing the script and then talking about it or or reading it together right. or whatever. Yeah. I bring in a nine-person cast, including stage directions and my mother, you know. What was your mother doing there, just to react? She, she was just there, proud and, like, looking around. <laughs> <laughs> also, it makes it more sad if they say no and your mom's right there. Extra, you know, maybe guilt. No. Added to it. Yes. Mom, cry, please. <laughs> um, so... So it's stuff like that, you know, it's stuff like going that extra little bit, that thinking outside the box that um, that can just help you land the shit you want to land. That's mm-hmm. like a moment of bow advice really quick there. Um, so Susan listened to the script and it was a rough draft, but she listened to it and she was interested in it right away. Which was cool because Susan is notoriously picky about the scripts that the Blue Barn produces. Um, so it was like two days later, she called. She's like, can you come in for a meeting? And I was like, sure. So I go in for a meeting and they want to put it on the season. And not just on the season, they want to open the season with it. Oh, okay, let's do this. You weren't anticipating that. I wasn't. What I thought they would do is do like a one night reading of the show. Okay. And I had told them straight up, like after we got done with the reading, I said, if you want the show, it's yours. If you don't, I'm going to produce it anyway. So you have 24 hours. <laughs> Was there pressure on your end, though? I mean, because obviously it's a great experience to have the Blue Barn open with it. And yeah. it's gotten a lot of publicity. I mean, so were you, as you were writing it, realizing like, I really, if I knock this out of the park, it will be very good for me. I mean, was that like a, a concept for you? A lot of pressure? Yes, but I always feel that pressure anymore okay like even if they weren't going to produce it even and I was going to produce it myself I would still have to make it the best it can be Mm -hmm. but I'm so glad that they did pick it up because then I had the resources of Barry Carmen, who is the director of outreach there he was a great resource for pulling in all of these we're partnering with inclusive communities and we're partnering with the NAACP and we did two symposiums and we're doing all of these um, panels after shows throughout the run, like having those resources. And then two, for me, it was great to have this done at the Blue Barn because they have, I mean, they have a huge list of regulars that come in and see all of the shows there and they have a huge um outreach for for of the community and so if I can get a show like this on a stage like that I'm going to be reaching a lot of people that I would not reach if I had just done it myself when you talk about you need to make sure your plays aren't boring and just like to make sure it all works and it's interesting for people who don't like theater how do you have the sensibility to know that you sell out a little bit you just I think about what I think is funny what I think is uh, entertaining and I try to lead from there I just try to keep it interesting like in this play the line um, Omaha Nebraska you like it here eh, it's not for everybody right. like that is such a I'm that is a gift to you <laughs> from me because I want you to be I want you to okay Okay, we can we can calm down now, right? Like, like they can relax and not just feel the gravity of the historical of what's to come, right? Yeah, okay, exactly, exactly. And I think too, like writing something um, historical and writing a historical drama, if you don't have humor in it, you're not going to crack people open. You know, like I don't want to look at or write tragedy without some infused comedy as well because that's really the balance that you need i feel and so i mean is that the key then it's the balance of the two different emotions of like you know something serious something meaningful but then also enough humor to keep it light enough that you know it's not just 
like the abyss, like I was talking about before. There's also yeah. laughs along the way. Is yeah. that is that the winning combination? I think I think for this show it's the winning combination, and I think for most shows it, it is, and also writing and creating characters that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, like what what do you have in common with um, a black guy from 1919 who moved up here from the south? You may think nothing. But then as soon as you see him talking about gambling or drinking, okay, I understand that. Okay, I like whiskey the second he's, you know, whatever it is. It's like finding that um, relatability. Mm -hmm. And then two, not writing toward an agenda. There are lots of agenda plays. and, and, And by agenda, I have to be careful because I'm not saying I don't want a white audience to assume that any black show has a black agenda to push or like any show by a gay writer has a gay agenda to push because I think that that is absolutely wrong, the wrong way to look at it. But by agenda, I mean, if you came to my show and I had put in so many anti-Trump jokes Mm -hmm. or like pierced through the hundred years and I started being very current about things that are happening today. I think people then close themselves off to being open to what we're talking about on the play during the show Mm -hmm. instead of being able to like, you know, look at the parallels between now and then and bridge their own gaps. Right. I mean, I think to some degree there's an agenda to everything just in the sense that it's shaped by the way that the author sees the world. Sure. I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like this was actively trying to comment so much on re- on contemporary times. Right. But I mean, also, so like when you're when you're watching with an audience, sometimes you can intend not for something to land one specific way. And then sometimes I mean, have you have you been surprised mm-hmm. by some of the audience reaction where maybe it does feel like not necessarily an agenda, but it's like, OK, they took that in a way that wasn't what I intended. Not Yet, okay. not yet, but I'm always listening out for things that seem forced, mm-hmm. really, because I think it's in the delivery. You're right that everything has some kind of agenda behind it, but like, I think that word has a has a bad connotation sure. to it. Right? I don't mean it in a negative way. Yeah, um, like my agenda, my my intention of writing it from the top down. Right. Yeah. That's or what from I mean. the bottom down. From the bottom up. Bottom up, yeah, sure. What's my cardinal direction here? From the south-north. Yes. Um, Right, that could be viewed as an edge. I get that. Um, But I'm always looking for something that stands out as preachy. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I mean as an agenda, is like using the stage and my platform as a soapbox Mm -hmm. instead of a mirror would be a mistake. So would you say you had a specific takeaway from that ending when they're all speaking directly to the audience I mean, is there is there something you were trying to communicate beyond just the moment and the emotions of it? Well, that, I mean, that's kind of hard to say because that ending has changed a lot okay. in, in the different incarnations of the scripts. And this is draft. We've had eight drafts so far. So it's changed a lot. And ultimately, it came down to like how it's landed now. It's come down to um, structure, really, more than anything else. But we had Will's um, monologue all in one piece, just hearing from him. And then as I started reading through that other dialogue that's all pulled right from the newspaper, um, I started seeing the parallels and the things that he was saying with the things that were actually happening. And I wanted to make, I don't know, like this, this Jenga instead of just these two separate columns. Mm-hmm. And intermix the two. Well, then I mean it mirrors with the way the play opens too, in a cool mm-hmm. way. And I, yeah, yeah, I love that about it. And like, so the audience I saw it with, it seemed like pretty much everybody was crying at the end. Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're happy with that reaction. That's what I mean. Not not that you're trying to make them cry in a mean way or even, but like even just as a as someone working with drama to get a strong reaction from a crowd means something. It does. And I mean, obviously there's different sort of, there's a different element because it's a true story, Mm -hmm. but clearly it's landing. Yeah. Yes. The response has been overwhelming and surprising and humbling. And um, yeah, man, hearing audience reaction is, is really powerful to me because, because it's like, okay, everything that I did, all the tears that I cried 
writing it. All of the dark times that I had writing it, everything that we've poured into this is worth it mm-hmm. because they are taking something from it. I saw there was phone police at the Blue Barn. Yes. I'm just making sure no one has their phone out. Yes, because in a play like this, oh my God, like uh, somebody's phone was buzzing right in front of me almost at the end of the play. And I just wanted to flick the back of their little head because it just incenses me because what seems minimal to one person can really take somebody else out of the show. (laughs) Because I'm going to start saying this too in my curtain speeches. Turn off your phones. If you have candy, open that now because I don't want to hear it. At an, you don't know what's coming next. You don't know the line somebody is going to miss. And in theater, it's so true. If you, you you could miss one line, and then that whole scene was for nothing. Right. And I mean, plays are quiet. I mean, yeah. you need to listen. There's not like a movie that's really loud or there's like an action scene or whatever. I don't understand why people think, why do you need a peppermint right now? <laughs> well, you aren't you talking to anybody. Yeah. How do you not know that that peppermint rapper is just... If you, in my book, there's a whole, uh, the guy, Shep, he works at the movie theater and he's been at the movie theater for 20 years. And there's a whole uh, chapter in there about people at the movies and how like everything's driving you nuts. Right. Yeah. I don't know how we got on that, but like the noise, oh, plays being quiet. I mean, yes. End of scene. End of scene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So uh, where should people go to either follow you or anything you want to plug here? You can follow me at, well, I don't know, because my website's almost done. (laughs) That'll be BoatfieldBerryFisher.com. And I have a lot going on there. But also my Facebook is a great place to follow me because I'm just trying to keep it cool and positive right now. How's, How's that going? And it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it's mostly public, so you can see all the cool stuff we're doing. But I also plug what other people are doing a lot, too. So Mm -hmm. that's great. And you can come and see my kids on my Instagram page, BeautifulBoat84. And they're really cute. Um, But I encourage everybody to learn more about Will Brown. And you can do that. I mean, I would just start with with a simple Google search. And I would also encourage people to open themselves up to learning more about our history in general. You know, I think we, we, there's a lot of separation between American history and African American history and black history is American history. And there's a lot of it that I uncovered in this process and I'm pretty well versed in it. So there's so much to learn all of the time. And I just think that even if you're a bad student and you don't want to pay to go to school, knowledge is still your friend. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you for uh, getting hydrated and surviving to come be, come do the show today. I'm so proud of me. <laughs> you can purchase the script for Red Summer at the New Play Exchange. Bofield Barry is currently developing a new live theater experience, a Western from a black perspective that she plans to premiere in September. If you follow her on social media, you can find details and help contribute to the budget that she's currently putting together for the project. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Thank you for listening. I am Tom Noblock. <laughs>